1: And hey, guys, we just want to, uh, first of all, welcome you to, I think, our first Q&A night with just Sam. We had Chuck here a few weeks ago, uh, and I did not make that one, so I'm trying to actually backpedal on what I said first about this being the first one, because it's not. Uh, I'm going to be your host tonight, Austin Duncan, <laughs> and uh, if you guys don't know who that is, I don't re- you need to listen to John MacArthur more, but... <laughs> We're going to get into some questions for Sam and uh, see how the night goes. So, first question Sam, can you please share with us the gospel? Question mark, question mark, question mark. Yes, I can. Next question. Wonderful. How can we reconcile? Okay. The
0: gospel, the gospel. The gospel begins and ends with God. The the biggest problem we have is that God is good. It's a good God. And we are not good people. We are fallen in our first father, Adam. We're born depraved, dead to God, hating God, making up fake gods in our own imagination, And amazingly, this good God that would have been good to smite us all and send all of us to hell, that would have been good and appropriate and right, that God became human, experienced the entire human experience. Lived a perfect life at every second that we lived imperfectly. We lived every second failing to love God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind. We, we, we lived every moment failing to believe and trust and obey God and Jesus Christ, the God-man, God in flesh, God as human, loved God perfectly. Every second of his life, trusted God perfectly, obeyed God perfectly, and then died ultimately at the hand of God the Father through humans, wickedness slayed righteousness, guilt slayed innocence, the only time in human history when a bad thing happened to an actually good person. Jesus Christ was killed physically. But what we don't see is the more important significance of his death, that he was actually enduring the wrath of God, the right justice of God against all our sins, specific sins. Not just generally forgiving us as sinners, but executing justice against each of Sam Musgrave's failures to love God. And then he rose from the grave, both as evidence that God the Father accepted his sacrifice in my place, but also, as scripture says, he was raised for our justification. He was raised to put us right with God, not just taking our sins upon him, but giving us all his righteousness. And so, so that those for whom he died would, upon hearing this, believe, believe that I'm a sinner, believe that he's a savior, believe that I'm wicked beyond measure, and believe that he's good beyond imagination, and to believe that he is gracious to forgive all my sins, and to cleanse me of all unrighteousness, past, present, and future, and that I will actually be adopted as his son, made royalty with Christ to rule the world to come. Just amazing. And so we turn from our sin, not an effort to live a good life. We turn from our sin to a savior. And we say, I believe what you say of me, that I am a sinner, but that you save sinners. And that you're more gracious than I'm sinful. And I trust you. I'm desperate to trust you. And I take refuge in Christ's death on my behalf. His resurrection on my behalf. I believe him. And by believing him, I see over time my obedience to him because I believe that what he says is true. And so the gospel results in a transformed life that I was spiritually dead. He made me spiritually alive. And that over time, we see God's beautiful work in us really characterize how we think, how we feel, how we react, how we decide, how we live. Until we either die or Christ returns and we await a resurrected body. So our spirit's made alive right now, but our body is still dead, still hostile to God, and we anticipate a resurrected body when Christ returns, with which we'll reign with him on a new planet in a new universe forever and ever, which is amazing.
1: Amen. Thank you for that. Our next question How can we try to reconcile texts like Psalm five five to six, Romans nine, thirteen, and Romans nine thirteen with other texts such as John three sixteen? Can you speak about this please? With a small brief postscript. Thank you, Sam, for your faithfulness in pastoring, preaching, and shepherding us as a church at Trinity, and he wishes God's blessings on you.
0: I submitted that question.
1: Yeah. Uh, if you'd like, I can read through the yeah, short text. Yeah, that'd be great. First being Psalm 5, 5 through 6. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. You destroy those who speak lies. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. Romans nine thirteen says, As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated, or Samuel. Some translations say, so. uh, "John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life."
0: So, do you guys hear the seeming contradiction in those verses? It feels like the Bible's contradicting itself. How can it be that God hates all those? who do iniquity and yet God so loves the whole world that he gave his son how can those two things be managed how could god hate sinners not just sin it's a fairy tale that god hates just the sin and not the sinner he hates the sinner and it's not just psalm 5 psalm 11 other places speak about this. We have, to be, we have to do justice with that. We have to deal with that. And God says that he so loved, not just the world in general, but so loved us. Paul even says, he was persecuting the church. Paul says, he gave him, he loved me, loved me in the singular and gave himself up for me. It was a one for one. How can those two things be reconciled? Well, whenever we see things in Scripture that seem to be enemies, we first make a decision in our mind: they are not enemies; they're friends, and we don't have to reconcile friends. Both of them are true. Now, I'm going to talk about something that you you've probably heard me talk about here and there. Um, while teaching college and young adult group. I am growing increasingly convinced. I am convinced, and I'm only growing more convinced with each passing day, that the statement, God is love, is way more profound than we've ever realized and makes sense of more in Scripture than we can possibly appreciate. What do I mean? Well, Sinclair Ferguson has convinced me that the holiness of God is not God's separation from sin. The holiness of God is the Trinity, three persons, one being. God is one what, three who's. That Father, Son, Spirit, Holy Father, Holy Son, Holy Spirit love one another. I think we talked a little bit about this with jealousy in First Corinthians 13. That God is a jealous God is not a single person God being jealous for God's self. But that God is a jealous God, a jealously loving God, is the Father is jealously loving for the Son, the Son for the Father, the Son for the Spirit, the Spirit for the Son, the Spirit for the Father, so on and so forth. They are individual persons jealous for one another. Okay, And so any sin is a lovelessness toward the three persons of the Trinity and the other persons are jealous in response to that. Can you imagine, think about the person you love most in the world. And imagine someone wronging them right in front of your eyes in a way that's very offensive to you. Your jealousy for that person that you love will flash in what kind of an emotion? What would we call the emotion that you would feel if, someone, if, someone, if one of you wronged Jake, my brother that I love? I'm jealous for him, right? I'm jealous for him. If Adam came up and, and just started beating Jake, how would I feel towards Adam? Angry. Angry. Notice this, the wrath of God against sinners is nothing short of the love within the Trinity between the persons of God toward those who do not love God and give God the glory he deserves that the persons deserve. So think about that. The anger of God, the hatred of God towards sinners is the love of God for God, within God, between the persons of the Trinity. All of it can come back to the love of God within the Trinity. So they are not seeming contradictions. God can justifiably, it's actually right for the Trinity to hate Those who do not love the Trinity, do not give glory to the Trinity. And it's also true that the love of God pours out in mercy and grace towards a whole multitude of those sinners who repent and trust Christ. Now you might be saying, how can that be? So you're telling me that God... At one and the same time, hated me and loved me? In a sense, yes. We were all, before salvation, children of what in Ephesians 2? Say it again, say it loud. Wrath. Wrath. What's a synonym for wrath? Anger. Okay? God saved us from the wrath of God. God was angry at us. God hated us he justifiably hated us in our sin not just our sin but us in our sin and at the same time this is the extravagant amazing part that's the easy part he's obligated to hate us the amazing part is that god in his extravagant love had an over i think this is why scripture refers to his his love As as overflowing to us. His grace as profuse and more than abundant. His justice is precise. If justice is ever a little bit more or a little bit less than what's required, we call that injustice. Justice in excess is injustice. Lacking justice is injustice. So God is precise in justice, but profuse in grace. And here's where we see it, that God overwhelms his own hatred of us by executing perfect justice against our sins in Christ, that his grace toward us would abound and abound beyond what we need. Just incredible. So those things are both true, that God hates the sinner, and God so loves sinners that he sent forth his son, and he died for sin. His son died for sin. I think that's probably sufficient. If you have more questions about that, you can ask at the end. We'll try to get through everything.
1: How do you witness to someone who will not accept the Bible as factual?
0: Mm, that's a good one. There's a couple verses that are really helpful for me as I evangelize. Okay. Um, one is Romans one where it says everyone suppresses the truth in their unrighteousness. So think about that. That's activity. Everyone is actively pushing down the truth of who God is. That means that they have an awareness of it. They're aware of it and they're pushing it down because they want to sin freely. Okay? That's all of us. We were all born doing that. We saw that there's a creator. We saw that there's uh, an intelligent designer. We saw that there's a God. We can clearly perceive it. And we push the truth down about it because we want to sin. So, number one, okay? Number one, no one, no one that you witness to is really ultimately having an intellectual problem. Every one of them, they're having a heart problem, a moral problem, okay? Everyone knows there's a God. Everyone knows that justice and judgment are coming. That's the second verse. Jesus said, I think it's in John 14. It's in the Upper Room Discourse. John 14, 15, 16, 17, So, on, or 13 onwards, 13. Uh, to 17. I think it's in chapter 14. Jesus says that the Holy Spirit convicts the entire world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. Okay, hear what Jesus just said. The Holy Spirit isn't just working in believers. Yes, He indwells believers. We can talk more about that later. He doesn't indwell unbelievers. But he's convicting unbelievers of what sin is, of what righteousness is, and that they will be judged for what they've done. So not only do they clearly perceive and push down the truth in their pursuit of unrighteousness, Romans 1, but John 14, I think, the Holy Spirit is telling them, you're sinning, you're sinning, you're sinning. That's what obedience looks like. That's what obedience looks like. That's what obedience looks like. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. I'm going to judge you. Everyone has an awareness of this. Now, some people might be more aggressive in drowning that out with pleasure and a variety of other things, with philosophy, building up strongholds. That's Corinthians. They build up these igloos to protect them from a knowledge of God so they can live in sin. And Paul says the gospel smashes those strongholds down. Okay, that's what we do. So how do, you, how do you minister to someone who doesn't believe the Bible is factual? There's a sense in which deep down they know it's factual. So guess what you don't do? You don't go to things outside the Bible to prove the veracity of the Bible. Why? Because you're at the same time telling them the highest authority on truth is God's word, but I'm going to go to an authority higher than that to prove the authority of this. Nope, we don't do that. You know what you do? You say, let me show you that the Bible says that it is factual and you should believe it. Wait, but I just told you I don't believe the Bible. I know that's your problem. Let me tell you what the Bible says about people who don't believe the Bible. And you just keep going back to the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. That's the sword of the Spirit. That's what smashes strongholds down. And the more militant they tell you, I don't believe the Bible, we respond in like with gentleness saying, you ought to believe the Bible because the Bible says so. You see, ultimately, they might get angry at you, but you are living out what you preach, which is this is the authority. This is the highest authority. This is the authority of God. This bears God's character. And so I can't go to something other than God's word to defend God's word. I go to God's word to defend God's word and our conviction. I'm telling you guys, I remember being, I remember being your age. That wasn't that long ago, believe it or not. And feeling so insecure. Like I need to know all this philosophy. This I, I majored in philosophy. I need to know the, the, the arguments outside scripture, So that people pay attention to the Bible. No. I need to know the Bible. I need to bring them to the Bible. And you'll find. Over time you'll find. Ah. It is so true. And you're like dogs chasing their tails. When you get out of the word. And try to wrestle with them. On their own turf. They're just dogs chasing their own tails. Bring them to the truth.
1: And I think it's. Extremely important is, as we go out and we evangelize to others, and if you're having these conversations with people, to recognize and remember that it is not you who is persuading. It's mm-hmm. not your intellect. It's not how well you are with words. It's not um, anything. Mm-hmm. But the power of God, Ephesians eight says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, but is the gift of God. hmm So you can go forward knowing that, allow that to um, bolster you as you evangelize and minister to others, knowing that that's not you.
0: Romans 1, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to those who believe. Romans 10, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ, right? It's really wonderfully liberating for us. Um, You don't need to be smart. You just need to know God's word. I know this is really relieving for Drew, especially. No, Drew's smart. Drew's really smart.
1: Drew's first. I think Brett's so smart, he had you tricked. He was actually drinking something. Yeah. That was pretty crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Dust. Our next question is something very specific for Sam's personal life. When did you get serious about your faith?
0: Yeah, you know, it's actually difficult for me to answer the question um, when I was born again. I don't know when I was born again. Um, I've believed in Jesus since I can. I can't remember ever not believing in Jesus. I was brought up in a Christian home by God's grace. And... um, um, yeah i'm eternally grateful for that, but I can mark out where i got where there was a very clear level of I went from casual with the Lord to extremely serious, and that was the year I moved back from the Philippines. I stayed a year in the Philippines and served with my dad after graduating high school because i didn 't know what I wanted to do with my life. I just knew i didn 't want to go to college. And, uh, and so I served with my dad terrified. I was the only person in my graduating class of 82 people that had no clue what I was going to do after high school. Felt like a total loser. Okay. And the, uh, I just knew that I, I work like my dad. I, I, you know, I can build and stuff like my dad. And so I did that with him, helped him. And, um, campus Bible church. How many of you have heard of campus Bible church? That's where Jake and I grew up, and that's where our parents were married, and we grew up. And the, the senior pastor called us up and said, hey, I'd really like Sam to come back and serve uh, in the junior high department. And we'll pay him to do custodial work at the church, and he can be an intern for the junior high ministry. I was like, no, I'll do that. That sounds great. Came back, started, and was asked to teach maybe two weeks after I started. I, I moved. My first Sunday back was June 4th, 2006. And so, within two weeks after June 4th, um, I was asked to teach for the first time. I had never taught anything. And I opened up my Bible for what felt like the first time to really seriously, I wanted to teach these junior hires. I wanted to do my job well. And it was like the word of God flashed alive. It was like I had been reading the Bible with like a granular black and white fuzzy salt and pepper image before this. I don't know what happened. I've been tempted at times to think that I was born again that week because it was like God came to life and the Bible just grabbed me. And I realized I have been playing with God like he's this little mouse and God is a lion. I've been batting around his tail and he's been patient with me. And I, guys, I'm not a charismatic person. I was so ashamed of how self-sufficient I had been, how careless I had been with God. I laid on the ground in the office. No one was there. Uh, It was late at night. I was studying. And I cried and begged God for mercy. And I just had this overwhelming sense of forgiveness from the Lord, love from the Lord, assurance that I'm His. And I taught that Sunday. And first time I'd ever taught... And I, all I remember is sitting down after teaching probably a room of 15 junior hires. And I was, whew, I was like breathing. And this other guy's his name's Philip Bergman. He was serving in there with me. He came up to me and he said, Sam, if you don't do that for the rest of your life, you're going to waste your life. And I said, I know. And so what do I do? I asked the, my pastor and he said, you should probably go to seminary. All right, I'm going to seminary. So I went to seminary, and then I kept going to seminary, and yeah, here I am, in seminary. And well, no longer in seminary, I guess. But yeah, st- yeah, I mean, close to it, studying theology. And I, it's so funny, guys. You talk about the Lord having a different plan for you than you thought. I went from literally thinking I was not going to go to college, terrified of the thought. No one in our extended family ever went to college. My dad didn't graduate high school. My mom went to continuation school. Okay? I mean, we're talking an uneducated family. And I'm working now on my second doctorate. I mean, the Lord has different plans for us than we might have for ourselves. Plans way more than we could ask or imagine. And so trust Him. Obey Him. Take a step at a time. He's just got a way of putting things before you that you would have laughed at Him. Uh, if he put it all before you at once. But thank God that he just patiently just brings us along inch by inch and uh, sanctifies us along the way. You listening, Christian? Okay.
1: I think I heard some kind of Jewish incantation being uttered from Christian's mouth just now. Kabbalah? Yeah. Not here, buddy. Um, Our next question... (laughs)
0: <laughs> he gave me the Shalom sign <laughs> Do you guys know that a little bit of trivia Do you know that Star Trek The Live Long and Prosper What's the guy's name that played uh, Spock Leonard Spock Leonard Nimoy Leonard Nimoy, Leonard Nimoy. He was a Ju- He's a Jewish man And when he was a little boy He remember looking up While the rabbis would pray in synagogue And they would make the sign of Sheen Which is the first letter in the word Shalom and they would do that. And so he borrowed that. It's actually Shalom. So Live Long and Prosper comes from the Bible.
1: Hmm.
0: That was a freebie.
1: Simply wonderful. And we'll visit that in a later question.
0: We will. Something related, yeah.
1: yeah. Communion in which only the members of the church participate versus an open table where anyone is available to participate. Oh, excuse me. Hold on. Let me reread this. This is kind of a bit strangely. I you sorry right. if you wrote this. Where anyone is available to dash, we practice the latter.
0: We practice an open table where anyone could participate, not just members.
1: But is anything wrong with the former? Okay. Maybe I was lost in translation.
0: No, there's, there's, yeah, there's nothing wrong with having the practice of just members participating at the Lord's table. In fact, there's a very healthy argument that can be made from Scripture. When you look at 1 Corinthians 11, you guys just heard this from Alex, right? We're, we're told to examine ourselves very seriously before partaking of the Lord's table. Think about this. It, you drink judgment on yourself if you're not a believer, if you're not born again, if you're not in covenant relationship with the Lord through his new covenant, through his blood you're celebrating his death on your behalf and yet you've not repented and trusted his work on your behalf you're literally drinking the very thing that will judge you that christ died for sinners and you refused him you see so what churches and i can't speak for all churches i'm sure there's some churches that practice this and do it with wrong motives but assuming the best about our brothers and sisters that practice a closed table where just members in the church can partake in the Lord's table, what they're communicating is, we want to protect people from drinking judgment on themselves. We love you. This is something that is only designed for believers, And if I went to a church that practiced closed table, in other words, I'm not a member at that church and therefore cannot participate in the Lord's table, I would actually respect that. And I'd say, you know what? Praise God, they're being vigilant. They're caring for people's souls. And they're saying, I don't want an unbeliever to pass judgment on themselves. I don't know if you're really born again. I've not talked with you to see if you've professed faith in Christ. I don't know, you know, I don't know if you've been baptized or not or whatever. And so we're just going to have the members of this church celebrate together. There's nothing wrong with that. Now we just admonish people and warn people with a warm warning. Listen, if you're not in the Lord, this, this table, this is not something to be trifled with. This isn't just something to fit in and just take it. You know, we want you to, to, we would want you to repent and trust Christ and partake here now for the first time. That would be great. But if you if you're know that you don't trust the Lord, um, we advise you to to not participate in this because of how serious the word speaks about it.
1: Hmm. Will we have to give an account before God about every missed opportunity we had to share the gospel with an individual?
0: Hmm. Yes. Scripture says, Jesus says, in Matthew's gospel, just for the sake of time, you can go look it up for yourselves, but in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says that we'll give an account for every careless word we spoke. I want you to hear that. I will give an account, I will give an answer before the throne for every careless word I spoke. How many of you guys are feeling really good about judgment right now? Okay. Exactly.
1: That's terrifying.
0: Jake just copies everything I do. So don't for just forgive me. Just raise it. Just forgive. Him. <laughs> you think about that. You think about the way that scripture speaks about sin, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Okay. How are you doing on that? Just today alone. How many of you guys consumed food or consumed beverage and didn't mindfully be thinking, Lord, thank you for this. Oh, this, thank you for this flavor. Thank you for the refreshment. Thank you for the nutrients. How much of your life is therefore failure to glorify God, failure to love him, failure to, to obey him so much of our lives, even in Christ? Now. I was just reminded from a dear friend this past week, uh, Keith DeLong, who's going to be coming on as one of one of our elders here in a few months. He remind, he he told me he didn't remind me he told me something he had heard Sinclair Ferguson say. When we look at what Scripture says about God's rewards for our obedience. It's the difference between a few coins and cities. If I am faithful with the few coins he's given me to invest, he's going to give me in return for each coin a city to rule. Does this sound like an exacting God Does this sound, this judgment, does it sound like it's going to be one that's strict and burdensome? Or does this sound like a God whose judgment is even generous towards his people? In fact, I think that even the things that we failed to obey, sins. Why does Corinthians say that we're going to give an account for everything we did in the body, whether good or bad? Believers. I thought there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Talk about another seeming contradiction. There's no condemnation for you who are in Christ. That's true. Every one of us is going to stand before the judgment seat and give an account for everything we did. That's also true. And what is Jesus going to say for every one of those millions and billions of sins? Very, very short stack of obedience. Very monstrous mountain of sins. What's the purpose of bringing that up if he's not going to condemn us for those? I want you to think. The only answer I can imagine, there may be more, is look how much I love you. Look how much I died to save you from I died for all of those. I love you. I love you. I've been so eager to get you with me. Does that sound like condemnation? You going to give an account for it? Absolutely. You going to be condemned for it? Absolutely not. One of the free, one of the most beautiful things we can be told, one of the things that's going to ignite your evangelism, you guys, is to hear that you don't have to do it. You'd be sinning to do it. But they'd be forgiven sins. And our Savior is so great. So gracious. He wants to woo us to evangelize. Because he's so good. Is he that good? He's that good. And even better. Don't we want to tell people about him? Absolutely. Aren't we prone to make evangelism a religious necessity? Yep. Because we're stupid. But when we hear the free grace of God in Christ Jesus, we can't shut up about Him.
1: When I trust God in life's circumstances, what exactly am I trusting in Him for? Are His promises purely spiritual and post death? Can I expect physical provision as well? Is it wrong to have a mindset that God tends to provide through physical means? And even if he doesn't, can I trust him anyways?
0: It's a good question. Why don't we turn if you got your bibles turn with me to Matthew 6? Matthew 6, at the beginning of the chapter, you're going to notice that Jesus is teaching us to pray. Teaching us how to pray. And in his teaching us to pray, says, listen, the bedrock of it is your father knows what you need. So don't go to him thinking that you're going to twist his arm by your many words. Okay? The Lord doesn't operate forgive me if I sound a little too harsh for those of you that have either come out of a, a Roman Catholic background or still find would still call yourselves Roman Catholics. But the precedence of, you know, say this many Hail Marys or that many our fathers, Jesus actually directly taught against that he said, no, the Gentiles, the pagans do that. They think that by repeating a bunch of phrases that they're going to get the Lord to hear them. That's not how God operates. Here is children. Here is children. Come, come come and 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 pray like this. This is not a formula, but here are the kinds of things that you'll find yourself praying to this good God. Our Father, who is in heaven, make your name holy. Your kingdom come, bring your kingdom. Your will be done. You do what you want on earth as you do it in heaven. Give us this day what? Our daily bread. Does that sound like a God that's just concerned with the spiritual things? Heck no. Genesis 1, 2. God created everything. Invisible, visible. Colossians 1, John 1, Hebrews 1. And he said that all of it is what? What did he say after creating it all? let hear it. Come on. Good. It's very good. The spirit and the physical. He made the spiritual and the physical. It's all really, 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 really good. He cares about it. He made it. Okay? So we get this, give us our daily bread, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors, lead us not into temptation. What does that mean? You think about the place in the Psalms. The psalmist says, Lord, don't make me so poor that I steal and sin against you. But also, don't make me so rich that I forget about you. Lead us not into temptation, and protect me from becoming so poor that I forget uh, that I sin against you. Uh, protect me also from becoming so rich that my heart can't help but forgetting about you. This is dealing with physical things. Look at the end of the chapter, chapter six, verse twenty-five. This reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air, and they do not sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And he continues speaking. This is Jesus speaking, saying, come on, stop worrying about the physical things in your life. How does he, how does he conclude it? Verse 33. Seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness and all these things, brackets, that you worry about will be added to you. He'll give you exactly what you need all the time. This is our God. So yes, he cares about the physical as much as he does the spiritual. They're both very good.
1: And I think it's important as we look at that to keep in mind who God is. It's it's imperative that we understand the attributes of God, what God's word says about him, being complete truth. Doubting God's heart towards you, which essentially is what this is, is distrusting what his word says about him as being a sovereign, loving God. Um, I was looking for it. uh, Psalm 90. I, I couldn't find, not Psalm 90, but... Uh, The passage that I was looking for talks about God providing the afflictions in your life. Mm. I think we have a very wrong view of God being able to manipulate something that's happening outside of his control for your good. That's not what's going on. God is orchestrating. God has decreed. God has ordained. All of these things he has custom built. These things to happen to you in your life to accomplish what he seeks to accomplish, and that's it, and he will accomplish them.
0: And that is our good, our benefit, our being made like His Son, our being fit to rule the world to come with Christ. Um, it is the greatest good that we could be done. If you don't have the physical things in your life provided for, you die. That's not doing you much good, right? So he's going to do all of it, including the weakness and the strength.
1: Where was the church for 1,500 years before the Reformers came along? Is there evidence of apostolic fathers and those that came soon after preaching substitutionary atonement?
0: Absolutely. Um, Substitutionary atonement is preached from the beginning of time, until now, not just the beginning of the church or the apostolic fathers. Substitutionary atonement is is preached in Genesis. God himself kills the first creature. He slays an animal and he clothes Adam and Eve with the garments, the skins. They, in their false religion, tried to cover themselves by other means. It was God who came and clothed them with skins not their own. Shed blood, not their own. And that's continued in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. It's seen in Christ crucified on the cross. It's preached by the apostles in the New Testament. And it is absolutely able to be discovered, therefore, in the apostolic fathers or the early church fathers who succeeded the apostles and uh, continued. You can find substitutionary atonement throughout the entire church history. The Reformation marked a widespread rediscovery of the doctrines of the gospel and through the printing press spread these widely to the masses, but they didn't restart something that had stopped. God always had his remnant. God always had his people. The true church was unbroken. God always had believing, repentant believers on the planet, his people, certainly. Um, So we don't want to emphasize the Reformation in an unhealthy way that suggests in people's minds that before the Reformation, there was no faithful church. There absolutely was. Um, the reformers, uh, part of my studies right now, I'm reading, uh, an English reformer by the name of Richard Sibbs, And he was reading people that came before him during the medieval period, men that considered themselves Catholics, a hundred percent of the reformers considered themselves Catholics upon their death. There was no first Baptist church down the street. There was just one church. And so we, it's helpful for us to, to hear that and realize. Uh, by the way, Augustine lived in the late 300s, early 400s. Guess who the Reformers are reading? Probably more than any other, uh, pers- any other theologian. He's way after the early church fathers, and he's way before the Reformers. 1,200 years before Martin Luther. And Martin Luther's reading Augustine going, Augustine's reading the same Bible I am. Why isn't the church teaching this? Why is the church keeping people from reading this? Um, so that's the, the long and short of it.
1: According to Reformed theology, regeneration precedes faith. Shown, for example, in places such as John 6.44, Ephesians 2.4-5. But elsewhere, Paul writes that when we heard slash believed the gospel message, we were sealed with the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. referencing Ephesians 1.13 and Galatians 3.2. And the work of the Spirit in regeneration is the work of the Spirit of regeneration different than his work in the sealing of believers that Paul talks about.
0: Yeah, there's two ways that I would answer that question. So first of all, the language does suggest that the Spirit does one thing and then another. It can also be true that in time, that's simultaneous, that it's in an, in an instant that that happens. Okay, So we don't need to get too panicked over the time, the chronology. There is, however, an order in these things that the Lord... Really quickly, does anyone know what regeneration means? That's a big theological word, but what does it mean? I mean the meaning of the word, not a theological definition. What does regeneration mean? Does anyone know? Does anyone know what language that is, first of all? English. (laughs) Yeah. Which, the, the word comes from? Latin. Okay, good. Okay. Re? Again? Generation or generate born, born again, new birth. It's just John three in Latin. Okay. So it's a big fancy word that intimidates us. It just means born again. All right. So you're born again. Your spirit was dead. We are dead both in spirit and body. God regenerates or births again our spirit. We're made alive in Christ. It's possible for the Lord to do that and then seal that new work by the Holy Spirit. The Spirit can make us alive and then seal that new creation, right? Um, and He does that with 100% of believers. And it's also true that that can happen instantaneously in time. And yet there be a logic, if you will, to what happens first and what happens second. Okay? Repent and believe the gospel. I have to be born again to see sin, to hate sin, to see Christ as Savior, to love Christ, to repent and believe. I have to be born again to do that. And it's also true that repentance and belief are kind of simultaneous. I don't repent unless I believe certain things. And yet we get the point of turn from sin and trust Christ. So these things, there's an order to them, yes. And there's an instantaneous nature to them as well. So we want to be really careful that we don't become so technical that we're really tripping ourselves up from actually doing what they do. You know, there are a lot of people out there, guys, who can talk a great deal about what the Bible says about repentance, and they've never repented There's a bunch of people out there that could talk a great deal about belief and never believe. I guarantee you that if Satan and his demons came in the room and we had a debate, they would tear me from limb to limb. And yet they do not take refuge in the blood of Christ. It's not offered to them. So it's one thing for you guys to be able to speak theologically. I would encourage you right now. It's great to learn theology. But only learn theology as a means of seeing who Christ is and loving him. If you're not doing that, you're just piling up damnation on yourself. You're puffing up with knowledge. Love for Christ. Love for his people
1: builds up.
0: And so that's how we want to study theology.
1: In our final few minutes, I'm going to... Combine a few of the questions as they would naturally flow together. Uh, Is it okay to watch media containing witchcraft and other demonic content? Paranormal activity, uh, Harry Potter, Stranger Things, or even Lord of the Rings. The movies, not the books. If not, is it okay to watch it if it is marketed towards children and isn't creepy but still contains real spells and other symbols from the occult?
0: You combined several questions there?
1: I combined two.
0: Okay. Because um, I was reading on, and it seemed that maybe the same person wrote oh. more.
1: Where should the line be drawn? Yeah. Sorry, those was a weird space. Yeah. Where should the line be drawn, and what does the Bible have to say about this topic? Yeah. And then the second question is, what's the... Di- oh, never mind.
0: Yeah. No, that's, that's, a great, that's a great, 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 great question. Um, is, did, it, did they talk about conscience or whatever, in the, like, conscience issues, personal conviction, I think is the word.
1: Um, I don't know if that's part of the same question, but I guess it could be. Yeah,
0: let's lump that in.
1: In First Corinthians 10, it states that all things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. There are some areas in our Christian walk that are personal conviction, but oftentimes these lines are blurred between what is a personal conviction and what is actually something that Christians should not partake in. hmm
0: Yeah. Really good, so really good question. So if you guys remember, um, in 1 Corinthians, um,
1: do I need to separate you guys?
0: Trying and remember where it is. We have to remember the context of of 1 Corinthians. Paul is quoting what the Corinthians are saying at various points. And that doesn't necessarily strike us. Um, So the Corinthians are saying, everything, we've got freedom for everything. Everything's lawful because of Christ. And Paul says, whoa, 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 whoa. Not everything is profitable, okay? Oh, we can do anything. Christ, Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. I'll, I'll, I'll rejoice over the blood of Christ and do whatever. And he goes, "Whoa, whoa! That's not what new creatures sound like." Not everything's profitable. Now, getting into issues where there isn't a direct command. Um, can you imagine having a conversation with Paul about movies, right? Um, there's, there's a little bit of, there's some need for discretion in this. Let me give you guys an object lesson from, from the, uh, the very beginning, the nature of the fall. Why don't you turn with me to Genesis 3. What did God command Adam in chapter 2, 2, 16, Yahweh God commanded the man, the woman's not yet been made, saying, from any tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat from it, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Fast forward to chapter 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which Yahweh God had made. And he said to the woman, she wasn't around when Adam received the command. So we're assuming, we don't know for sure, but we're assuming that Adam was the one responsible to instruct his wife Eve about God's command. And he said to the woman, indeed, has God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, from the fruit of the trees of the garden, we may eat. But from the fruit of the tree, which is in the midst of the garden, God said, you shall not eat from it and you shall not touch it lest you die. Mistake made. He's got her. He knows exactly that he's got her in his grasp. Why? Satan tempts Eve by subtracting from the word of God. Did God say you couldn't eat from any trees? He subtracts from the word of God. Eve overcompensates and adds to the word of God. He said we can't eat it. We can't even touch it. God did not say that. If Eve went up and touched the fruit of the tree, no fall. If Adam went up and touched the fruit of the tree, no fall. If he pressed it up to his lips, no fall. Eat it. Now, why do I bring that up? We have a tendency to do the same exact thing as our first parents. We have a tendency to see God's word and to do what the Jews did in the old Testament. They got God's law, his revelation, his word, and then they built all their commands around the 10 commandments around the law so that they couldn't even get close to disobeying God's law. That does not please God. So we need to be very careful. We need to search the word. And if your conscience Is convinced by God's word that sorcery is forbidden to practice sorcery is forbidden. The works of the flesh are sorcery. That's in there. It's in the new Testament, not just the old. The Lord says, do not mess around. It's real stuff. You can, you can deal with demonic beings and those demonic beings can do things that are, as we would call them, magical. They're supernatural. It's real. God doesn't command us to, don't, don't, don't try to fly. We can't fly. He doesn't command us from doing things we can't do. He commands us, no sorcery, no witchcraft. So, that's clear. Can I watch a movie about witchcraft? I'll tell you guys this. Sam Musgrave can. I'm not tempted to dabble with witchcraft if I watch a Harry Potter movie or Chronicles of Narnia or Lord of the Rings. Just is not an issue for me. My conscience is never violated. I'm never convicted afterwards thinking, you know what, Lord, I really am tempted to go conjure a spell now. Just doesn't do it. Okay. That's me, though. I remember preaching a sermon when I was new to here, new at Trinity. And I mentioned that demons are more like wizards than goblins. We think of them as little, you know, goblins, but they're more like brilliant wizards. They're more like Saruman from Lord of the Rings. Brilliant, powerful. And I had a young woman come up to me who had, sadly, a dark past in the magical arts and was, I believe, harmed uh, by that. And she was scandalized. She was absolutely aghast that from the pulpit I would liken something to magical arts. I personally don't regret my illustration. I was likening demons to them. But I was sad that I had offended my sister, right? And so we need to be careful. We don't know who we're offending. Um, If before the Lord you can uh, enjoy some entertainment from some fiction or whatever that has magic in it and not be tempted to practice sorcery, By all means, I believe that the Lord says that that's fine. But if you or someone in the room has been affected by that, has tampered with it, um, or if you're tempted to mess with it, he who knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, to him it is sin. And so we want to be very serious about that. I know that that's probably not a satisfactory answer, but... Guess what? When it comes to what the scripture doesn't say, I'm not going to give you some sort of artificial command out of my own personal fear. I don't want to modify God's word. The Holy Spirit indwells you. And I trust his work with you better than I would trust my superficial work with you.
1: Well, that is all our time this evening.
0: We did all right. 8.07. We did
1: did all right. Yeah. Yeah. Seven minutes and 54 seconds. Um,
0: I'm shocked. We did not get one question about like the spiritual gift stuff and, and like tongues and prophecy and all that, but maybe you guys are really confident we're going to be doing a good job on that in the weeks to come here in chapter 14.
1: Perhaps, perhaps, um, Well, to quote Chuck, thank you, Sam. And thank you, Lord. (laughs) And allow me to close our time in prayer, and we will uh, point you in the direction afterwards. So let's pray. Father, we come to you knowing, Lord, acknowledging that you and you alone are the sovereign God of all things. From your mouth, creation came through your words. Lord, how glorious and wonderful and powerful You are merciful and gracious, God-loving, that you would love us first so that we would even want to love you, God, that you would change us, that you would cause us to repent and cause us to believe, changing our very being so that we would love you, that we would desire you, that we would want to be saved. If it were up to us, we would still be running in rebellion and we would do that to hell. Lord, we thank you for this evening. We pray that for those who ask the questions, you would have spoken through Sam to clarify these things in our hearts. Lord, that this would draw us to your word. That we would dive into your scripture so that we would know for ourselves what it says. Lord, we beg you. We beg you to continue to change us. Mm-hmm. Lord, that you would draw us, cause us to repent of our sins. Lord, that you would cause us To love you more. That you would cause our faith to grow. And we know that you will do it. We know that you are perfectly faithful to do these things. Father if we are struggling to even desire to read our Bible. That we can stand before you and pray for the desire. And you will be joyful to give it. Oh God how good you are. That you would look on us and send your son to die a sinner's death. To drink the full cup of your wrath. And to save us. To secure us for eternity. Lord, fill our hearts with joy this evening. As we fellowship with each other. As we ask more questions. Lord, and as our eyes are turned to you. I pray that this evening glorifies you, God. We pray all of these things according to your sovereign grace. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. And if you're interested, in a great Bible college here in the area, check out CalChristianCollege.edu. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.